Good morning, Missio. Uh, please join me in the reading of God's word. This is John 20, 19 through 29. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the 12, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your fingers here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Well, welcome, Missio. Oh, no. Would you uh, join me in prayer one more time as we get going? Jesus, thank you for your story. And today we get to celebrate and encounter you in these post-resurrection narratives. I think many of us in this room, or maybe just uh, our culture generally, is in a moment that feels to me a lot like the Apostle Thomas. We've experienced things that have unraveled the foundations of our faith. We want to believe in you, and we believe that you are good and right, but sometimes it is difficult to know what to do with our doubts or our crisis of faith or the loss of you and So God, we just bring that to you today. We bring questions and concerns and worries. We bring the anxiety of Holy Saturday in between crucifixion and resurrection. And Jesus, we ask that you would encounter us the same way you encountered Thomas. Compassion and grace and love and a presence that is big enough for the questions that we bring. Jesus, be with us this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Welcome, everybody. It's fun. <laughs> it is good to be with you. Uh, I, we took a Sabbath Sunday right after Easter, and then I was uh, out last weekend, and so it feels like I haven't been with you in so long. It's nice to be here in your presence. Uh, what a delight. What a delight. Uh, today, we are continuing our series entitled Eastertide. And Eastertide is a season within the church calendar that we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. And traditionally, the way that we do this is by looking at these post 
resurrection stories or encounters with the person of Jesus. And so last week, Heather began this conversation by looking at the life of Mary Magdalene and her encounter with Jesus at the beginning of John chapter 20, where she's the first person to see the resurrection, the first apostle to the apostles to declare the good news of resurrection. And today, we're moving on in that conversation, and we're going to look at Thomas and his encounter with the resurrection of Jesus. And I don't normally title sermons, uh, because it just feels like a weird thing to do, um, because you're never going to remember them. Uh, But I did title today's sermon, and I'm going to tell you what it is, because I think it's funny. Today's sermon is titled, Notes on Losing, Finding, and Rethinking Jesus from Thomas the Twin, a.k.a. Tom Tom the Doubter, a.k.a. a.k.a. Not That Judas, Thomas, the disciple, uh, his real name is Judas, and scholars believe that he stopped going by Judas because of that other Judas we are more familiar with, and he begins to go by Thomas. Thomas is Greek, Tome, for the twin, and sometimes in the text it'll say Thomas Didymus, which means twin, so basically Thomas' name is Twin Twin, uh, which is the point of the Tom Tom. He's Twin Twin, the doubter. But we know Thomas most famously for his moment in John chapter 20 that was just read for us this morning by Josh, where Thomas doubts the resurrection of Jesus. And I think his story provides us an opportunity to talk about doubt and deconstruction and crises of faith this morning to wrestle with what do we do when our faith encounters something it doesn't know how to overcome? What do we do when our faith has an experience or our life has an experience that begins to unravel the very foundations of our faith, that begin to take shot at what we felt was so certain and true? What do we do when, like Thomas, we have this crucifixion moment and then enter into the quiet of Holy Saturday before the resurrection, unsure of what to do with our hope in Jesus. What do we do when we are like Thomas and we doubt very naturally the story of Jesus? And you might be thinking that your sermon is not for you. Maybe you're in a place in your life where you're like, I'm not doubting, I feel pretty pumped about Jesus. That's awesome. That is great. There will be seasons, though, in your life where faith is harder to hold. I don't say that to, to, to worry you about the future of your faith. It is just the nature of faith. There are seasons in which faith is hard to hold. The ancient church writers had lots of different language for it. St. John of the Cross called it the dark night of the soul, when it feels like God is far from us. Even Jesus on the cross says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Even Jesus, who is God, has moments of wrestling with his faith. Wrestling with our faith is a part of the Christian story. And if even that does not feel true of you in this moment, I think it will be true at different moments. And even if it, that it feels hard to believe, then at least this will be true, that you have friends in your life who are wrestling with doubt. If you want to love them well and 
point them to Jesus, then I think it is worth having a conversation about doubt and deconstruction. And maybe even more importantly than any of those things, I think the process of engaging with our doubt is the same process of growing into our faith. So hopefully that covers everybody in this room. Whether you doubt, don't doubt, have friends who doubt, someday will doubt, this is a story for all of us. Now, throughout the sermon, I'm not going to answer questions or try to argue you into faith. That's not the point of this conversation. What I want to do instead is look at Thomas's story because I think it helps us navigate our own moments of crisis and our own struggle with faith. So what we're going to do first is we're going to look at his story. And then I've provided just four notes. Four things we can learn, I think, from the story of Thomas that might help us navigate our own crises of faith. So let's begin by just looking at the story of Thomas. Thomas, as we said, was one of Jesus' 12 apostles, a disciple who's been following Jesus for some time. We don't get that many encounters with the apostle Thomas throughout the biblical story, but there is a few, and there's one that I think is really important to look at because it provides a bit of context to the character of this person And it comes in John chapter 11. And in John 11, Jesus gets word that his friend, a man named Lazarus, is sick. And Lazarus is quite sick, sick enough that they are worried he is going to die, but he's a few days away. So the story goes in so many ways that Jesus is like, we're going to go to Thomas, we're going to take care of him, we're going to make sure that he's okay. But the problem is that Lazarus is in a city called Judea, which just a little earlier in the story had attempted to stone Jesus. So it's kind of a tricky situation. Your friend is dying. He is sick. You want to go there and heal him because you're Jesus and you can do that kind of thing. But to go back to where Lazarus is, is dangerous. It's dangerous not just for Jesus. It's dangerous for his disciples. It's dangerous for his followers. They tried to kill him And so do you enter back into that moment? Jesus decides that that's what we're going to do. We're going to go to Lazarus. And it leads to this amazing moment where Thomas, in response to Jesus, says, Then Thomas, the one called Didymus, or twin, said to the other disciples, Let us go too, so that we may die with Jesus. I love this moment from the life of Thomas. It's a little dark. Uh, He might have been the emo disciple. (laughs) But I also think it shows Thomas's courage. The way we narrate Thomas's story is so often is like a person of immense doubt who when Jesus shows up, he doesn't believe and he asks for additional signs. And then we forget that earlier in Thomas's story, he was willing to enter into a dangerous situation in order to continue to follow Jesus, that his love for Jesus and his love for his friend Lazarus was so great, he would go back into Judea, the place that had literally threatened his life in order to be in solidarity with his Messiah. Thomas is not simply a person of doubt. He is a person of immense courage. A person who is passionately committed to following Jesus, so much so that he would enter into danger in order to be with Jesus. I think it's important to hold that in our minds as we pick up his story in John chapter 20. 
In John 20, we fast forward a bit into the story. Jesus has been resurrected, but the only disciple who knows this is Mary at the time. And the text tells us this. It was the first day of the week. That evening, while the disciples were behind closed doors because they were afraid of the Jewish authorities, Jesus came and stood among them. But then in verse 24, we learn that Thomas, the one called Didymus, twin, who was one of the twelve, wasn't with the disciples when Jesus arrived. We don't know where Thomas is. I think he was probably getting snacks. You've been hanging out for a while. You're nervous. I'm an anxiety eater. That's what I would be doing. This is a big pint of half-baked Ben and Jerry's to <laughs> comfort me after Jesus had died. But we don't know where he is. He's out. He's getting a snack. And again, I think this moment is amazing. All of the other disciples are what? Hiding, afraid of Jewish authorities. And what is Thomas doing? He's the only one who has left that place of fear. He's not behind the locked door. He is out in the public square getting Ben and Jerry's for the rest of the disciples. What a person of immense courage. I think that's just worth paying attention to. To complicate Thomas's story. We call him Thomas the Doubter, but his story is also one of deep courage. That when all the disciples are hiding away, Thomas is somewhere else. And he returns back to his friends. And when he returns, the disciples tell him this amazing thing. It says they have seen Jesus. Like he just was here. He appeared to us. And Thomas responds in that very famous way. He says, unless I see the nail marks in his hands. Put my fingers in the wounds left by the nails and put my hand into his side, I won't believe. And here is where Thomas gets the nickname Thomas the Doubter. But honestly, I think Thomas's reaction to what his friends tell him, is the most believable response. Honestly, it's the same thing that I would say if I was in that room with the disciples. If I had arrived and they told me that Jesus was alive, I would be like, that's impossible to believe. Dead things don't tend to come back to life in my experience. And not only that, but Thomas had just experienced the crucifixion of Jesus. He had lived through the silence of that day in between we call Holy Saturday. His life had been turned entirely upside down. His faith was unraveling. Thomas had hoped that Jesus was the Messiah. And in Jewish theology, Messiahs do not die. Messiahs build armies. They wage war on Rome. They conquer. They overcome. They are victorious. And what Thomas has seen in the death and resurrection of Jesus is a loss, a defeat, and the end of his Messiah story. Those are foundational theological ideas for Thomas. And all of a sudden, they have come under profound questions. And so Thomas doubts what his friends have told them. And I think, of course, he doubts what his friends have told them. 
I think many of us in this room are having or have had similar experiences to Thomas. Something happened in our lives or in our faith or maybe to our friends or in our culture that challenged our understanding of faith. They began to unravel what felt so foundational, what felt so certain, what felt so easy to believe one day is now beginning to come undone in this next moment. And I think like Thomas, we are people who love following Jesus. We love this person. We want to be near this person. We're willing to go into dangerous and strange situations in order to follow this person. But in this experience or these series of experiences, we have lost Jesus. We don't know how to follow. We don't know how to pursue. We don't know where to go. Something has happened in our lives and to our faith that has challenged our understanding. I think the first time that I had my own serious challenge to faith, it's like like middle school. Uh, My dad died when I was a child. But I grew up in a Christian home, and at some moment in my like preteen, early teen years, there was a convergence of my father had died, and this is the faith that I hold. And as that began to come like a real idea, all of a sudden I had to wrestle with like, is God good? Does God heal? Where was God in cancer? My father was a person of immense faith. And yet he wasn't here. And that question began to unravel for me some of the things I believed about faith, some of the things that felt so certain and true. So what do we do with those kinds of questions, those kinds of unravelings that will come to us in different moments? And I think this is the first field note or lesson we get from the life of Thomas. And it's simply this. Number one, do not be ashamed or afraid of your doubts. Doubt for Thomas comes from a lived experience. He had watched Jesus die. And I think that is true for most of us who experience doubt or crisis of faith. Something happens in our lived experience that begins to unravel what felt so foundational and true. I read an article a couple weeks ago by a pastor who said, deconstruction happens primarily by people who want street cred. And that might be this person's experience. But one of the gifts of my job is that I get to spend a lot of time with people who are wrestling with faith. And that has never been the story that I hear. Most people don't want to leave their faith. Because to leave your faith is to leave your family. It's to leave the good news that you love. It's to leave the community that you like to participate in. It's to leave a sense of certainty that feels profound to you. In my experience, in my own life, and in what I hear from others, doubt almost always comes from lived experience, genuine questions. And so do not be afraid of your own doubts. Do not shame yourself for your own doubts. And do not shame others for the doubt that they are experiencing. 
It is a part of the Christian experience, which is why the Psalms are full of prayers asking God, where are you? In my suffering, where are you? God, I don't feel you. I don't sense your presence. I don't know how to wrestle with these questions. The Psalms are full of that kind of worship and prayer in order to give us as the people of God permission to ask our own questions. I said this on Easter weekend, but Israel, the name that God gives his people, means one who contends with God. To be the people of God is to be a people who wrestle with God. It is a part of the Christian and human experience. So do not be ashamed or afraid of your doubts. Thomas is not asked to leave the gathering of the disciples. So don't make yourself leave. And don't ask others to leave either. This leads to the second learning that I think we see in the story of Thomas. Do not be afraid or ashamed of your doubts. Number two, wrestle with trusted conversation partner. The thing I love about this moment with Thomas is that Thomas is with his friends. And Thomas brings the questions that he's asking to his friends. And I love this because doubt and deconstruction can be so deeply isolating. It can make us feel alone, and oftentimes, unfortunately, it will lead to us actually being alone. And that is an additional kind of pain that we often experience when we are wrestling with doubt, is that we are isolated or alienated from the communities that we once called home. So find trusted friends and conversation partners to continue to engage with. This is difficult, challenging, hard work. Post-crucifixion, Thomas has got a lot to work through. So wrestle with trusted conversation partners. And the advantage that we have, in some ways over Thomas, is that we have a very broad set of conversation partners to engage with. We have our friends and our family that we can trust and love and that we can do life with. But we also have 2,000 years of Christian tradition that we can have a conversation with. And for me, during different moments of my own struggle with my faith or deconstruction, whatever you want to call it, I often say that I think one of the things that saved my faith is that mentors and friends helped me engage voices from our broader tradition. I grew up in a Christian tradition that was really heavily dependent upon spiritual encounters with God. I love this tradition. I have spiritual encounters that I'm really thankful for. I feel like ground my faith. I love them. But when I began to wrestle with the death of my father, spiritual encounters were actually not helping much. And in fact, the gift of a spiritual encounter started to become the source of many of my doubts. My tradition wasn't that intellectual. And so friends and mentors began to point me towards more intellectual expressions of Christian thinking. And I think it saved my faith to recognize that 2,000 years of Christian thinkers had engaged problems of evil, problems of death, problems of sin, that I was not alone in the questions that I was asking or the frustrations that I was feeling. And so wrestle with trusted conversation partners. Have friends around you who love you and support you and will not shame you, but will engage with your questions in truth and compassion. Number three, remember that your theology is not Jesus. 
Remember that your theology is not Jesus. Theology or beliefs about God, they are like a house that we build or we inherit to live in with Jesus. And in that house is lots of good and beautiful things. But sometimes our theological house needs a bit of work. Sometimes it needs to get bigger. Sometimes it needs to be remodeled. Sometimes we find a crack in the foundation. I think about this with Thomas, that Thomas's theological house was not built to handle crucifixion and resurrection. That's not what he expected of the person of Jesus. That's not the story he thought he was supposed to be believing. Messiahs are supposed to live, not die, to conquer, not lose. And so when Jesus appears to Thomas, there is a question proposed to him, do you want Jesus or the theological house that you have built for him? Sometimes they are different. One of the greatest joys of my job is that I get to spend time with people who are wrestling with their faith or people who have left their faith altogether. And oftentimes I'll ask a question that's something like this, like, hey, can you tell me about the God you don't believe in? And they'll tell me, and my response is almost always, I don't believe in that God either. There is a difference between the home that we have built and the person it is for. There's this quote from Brian Zond, who's a pastor that I want to read to you that I think is so helpful for this conversation. He says this, losing Jesus, finding Jesus, rethinking Jesus, this is the only way that we make spiritual progress and grow as disciples. Just about the time we think we've got Jesus figured out, he goes missing. We may fear that we have lost Jesus, but if we seek him, we will find him. But in the rediscovery, we will be required to rethink some things. And that is what repentance means, to rethink things in light of Jesus. It is a change of mind, a change of thinking, to see the world in light of Christ. Zahn goes on to say this, idols do not move. You can always find them exactly where you left them, but the living God will occasionally abscond from familiar confines, so we can never retire from being a seeker. A living God means a living faith. A living God means a living faith. And so if your house never gets remodeled, if the things that you believed when you were a child are not challenged as an adult, if your image of God never grows, you might actually have an idol problem, not a God problem. I believe God is perfect. I believe that God is perfectly revealed in Jesus, but our understanding is not perfect. This is the process of spiritual growth. Paul says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 13. Paul says, when I was a child, I used to speak like a child, reason like a child, think like a child, but now I have become a man, and so I have put away childish things. Now we see in a reflection like in a mirror, then we will see face to face. Now I know partially, but then I will know completely in the same way that I have been completely known. Our understanding should continue to grow and develop, which means that our theological home 
needs to be differentiated from the one that we have faith in. And this leads to number four, the final note. Investigate with your whole self. When Jesus appears to Thomas, he invites Thomas to, this is how the text says it, put your finger here. Look at my hands and put your hand into my side. And then he says this thing that's very interesting. He says, no more disbelief. Believe. What is Jesus asking or telling Thomas to do in this moment? It almost feels like the opposite of some of the things that I've just said. Like it almost sounds like Jesus is telling Thomas to overcome his doubts by just believing hard enough. Stop doubting, just believe. Is that what's happening in this moment? There's a 19th century Danish philosopher, this is how every riveting sentence begins, <laughs> named Soren Kierkegaard. And Soren Kierkegaard is very famous for developing this phrase that we often translate, leap of faith. Has anybody heard this before? The concept of leap of faith. Sometimes the way that we understand the leap of faith is to leap over our doubts. Like maybe you have your doubts, but you can just will yourself to have enough faith. It almost sounds like you ignore your doubts or you will yourself into no more doubts. And I think that's one way of reading what Jesus says to Thomas. Just believe. But the thing about Kierkegaard is that he's actually criticizing that kind of understanding of faith when he talks about this concept of leap of or leap to faith. Because for Kierkegaard, faith is not simply a set of ideas that you can choose to believe. In fact, Kierkegaard did not believe that you could think your way into faith. Instead, he believed that faith was more like a living relationship. And it is very tricky to think your way into relationship. If you try, Kierkegaard worried that you will actually get stuck in a ditch of thinking and doubting and skepticism. Because relationships are messy, they are living, they are complicated. And there's never easy answers to relationships because they are alive. There has to be a different way of engaging, a different way of knowing, a different way of learning in a real relationship than just thinking your way into them. And this is true of all relationships. I cannot simply think my way into marriage. If I never talked to Tori, I would not be married. And if I only ever thought of her, I might be in jail. (laughs) But if Tori and I never talked, if we never spent time together, if we never held hands, if we never moved together, if we were never in one another's presence, and my whole relationship with her was dependent upon thinking my way into it, I would actually not come to a place of confident belief, but instead, undoubtedly, I would come to a place of deep doubt and skepticism. Relationships with other people, they need more than just good information. They need living encounters. No matter how much I know about her, I'll struggle to believe the goodness of our 
relationships. And the less that we would spend time together, the less we would encounter one another, the more doubt would surface, the more I would question. And that's not because the rational part of my brain is bad. It's really good. God gave it to you. It's because it's not enough. I am more than a brain. I am a body and a heart, and all of it has to engage the work of faith like it all has to engage the work of real relationships. French philosopher and theologian Blaise Pascal has this very beautiful quote where he says this, that heart has reasons for which reason knows nothing of. We know the truth not only by the reason, but by the heart. There are truths like love and beauty that run deeper than our rational minds. They can be thought of, they can be engaged that way, but they also have to be engaged with our hearts. And so to investigate those deeper truths, we need to engage them with our whole selves. This is what Kierkegaard meant by the leap. It was not to overcome your doubts. It was to risk into doubts by taking actions of relationship. The action of trying faith on. This is the kind of leap we take in a relationship when we sit down together, when we hold hands, when we risk in love towards one another, despite history, despite insecurities, despite the doubts that I bring to another. It's the kinds of risks that we move towards with one another that grow in us relational trust and security. Kierkegaard said that's the leap that we have to take into faith. Keep investigating with your mind. Keep asking all of the questions. But if you don't also let your heart investigate, then you've not truly investigated this thing. If you don't let your body investigate, then you've actually not truly wrestled with whether this thing is true and good. Jesus shows up to Thomas and he says, hold my hand. Keep asking away, but let's have a moment together. For Kierkegaard, he believed that the way that we do this today is by imitating Jesus. Which I love. The idea is that to truly test our faith, we have to keep asking questions, keep engaging it with our minds, keep bringing our full rational selves to the question. Don't ever stop being that way. But he said also, Try on the way of Jesus. Try it on. You see Jesus say, love your neighbor? Why don't you try loving your neighbor like Jesus? What if you try the one who says he is the way, the truth, and the life? Maybe the way leads to the truth. Imitate Jesus. Try it on. Get your heart, your mind, and your whole body engaged in investigation. My uh, biological father, who I just talked about a second ago who died when I was a kid, he was a rough dude. I've not told a ton of stories about him, um, but he was in and out of prison for most of his life, uh, and he rode with a very notorious bikers gang called the Hells Angels. And he moves to Utah, quite literally chased here by a sheriff. Um, and he comes here, kind of like hiding out. He moves in with a couple who happen to be Christian. He doesn't know that he gets a place from them. He moves into their basement. 
And they one day, I don't understand exactly how this happens, but one day they invite him to meet their pastor. And their pastor happened to be also a very rough dude. He had been a former moonshiner in Kentucky uh, who similarly had a kind of radical conversion experience with Jesus, moved to Salt Lake City, probably still made moonshine, I don't know. I only met him once, wild guy. And my father and this man are having a conversation. It gets heated, and this man tells my father, who's, again, he's like a rough dude. He's 6'3", he's covered in tattoos, way less nice than mine. And this moonshiner from Kentucky tells my dad very specifically this, you are not man enough to follow Jesus. Now, there's some things there to be deconstructed for sure. You should excuse that for the sake of this story. I love this story because what happens is that my dad tries to follow Jesus. He's like, you won't tell me that. I'll show you what a man is. And then he tries. And in his trying the way of Jesus, has a wild experience with Jesus and becomes a follower. And what I love about this story, one is I just like talking about my dad, but I love it because it is about investigating the way of Jesus with your whole life. Keep your mind in the conversation. Please hear me in this. Keep your mind wrestling and engaging. Your house constantly needs to be remodeled. The reformers of the 15th century said, always be reforming. Our understanding should be growing and developing and changing. That's what Paul said. We're children one day. We're going to grow up to be adults. We're going to see fully someday, but now we see partially. So keep your mind in the game. But he says, if your heart and your body are also not investigating this, well, then you're not truly trying it out. And you haven't truly wrestled quite yet. So investigate this whole thing with your whole selves. Mister, I think this is a way forward when it comes to engaging our doubts and our crisis of faith. It begins when we learn that we are not ashamed or afraid of our doubts. They do not disqualify us. They do not remove us from the presence of Jesus. But instead, when we engage them with close friends, trusted conversation partners, when we allow our house to continue to expand, to fit the person of our living God, then I think we can try this thing on and truly investigate it. To see the one who is the way, the truth and the life. I want to end with this poem by T.S. Eliot. I just think this is a very beautiful picture of what we have been invited into. The poet T.S. Eliot says this, With the drawing of this love and the voice of this calling, we shall not cease from exploration. And the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we stand and know the place for the first time. Mr., I think this is the invitation we have with Jesus.